In today's episode, we're speaking to Jonathan Blue. Jonathan is the founder of and the CEO of Fusion Family Wealth, a Long Island-based fee-only registered investment advisory firm. His investment philosophy is centered on helping shape positive money behavior and by teaching wealthy people to consistently make rational financial decisions under uncertainty. As an industry thought leader in behavioral finance, helping investors to learn to make rational money decisions under conditions of uncertainty, Jonathan helps clients thrive by helping them identify biases that drive poor money decisions and then helping to modify their money behavior. Let's speak to Jonathan and find out how he changed his life by changing his mindset. Let's find out. Money Mindset with Girl Khan podcast will help you to break free from your limiting beliefs, reverse your money shame and blast through your money blocks so that you can live a life of unlimited abundance. In this podcast, we will talk about energy tools and mindset strategies that will help you to understand and change your relationship with money, whether you're in a job, profession, or working on your passion. Change your relationship with money to change your life. I'm your host, Gul Khan. Let's get started. Welcome, welcome. This is Girl Khan, your money mindset expert. And today I'm so excited. We're speaking to the amazing, the wonderful Jonathan Blau. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, girl. It's a pleasure and honor to be a guest on your podcast today. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for, for you know, giving us your presence. Thank you so much. Um, Jonathan, everyone's heard your intro. They know how fabulous you are, but please, in your own words, tell everybody what it is that you do. All right. So uh, what we do is we try to help wealthy uh, investors, wealthy people who've been successful in life, who now are charged with the responsibility of trying to manage that wealth, to learn how to make rational decisions about the money they have when they're faced with conditions of uncertainty, which I guess is almost always, right? We're always in in a condition of uncertainty. So we help them to, uh, to come up not only with a plan, but to, to 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 learn how to adopt the steps and the behaviors that are needed to bring that plan to its most likely highest level of completion. And we do that by identifying the biases that drive poor decisions and, and then helping them modify the investment behaviors driven by those biases. Fabulous. So essentially you help entrepreneurs or or, or people who have come to money with actually investing and um, reaping fruits from you know basically is the 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 benefits of that that wealth whether it's through business or through sale business or through um some other form of inheritance or something like that um That's that right. may, i think that would make sense because i think there's a more demand for it and somebody listening may think well how how much demand could it be so let's ask that question because in my because my understanding is and i'm in the entrepreneurial world there are far more millionaires now than there ever were in 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 history, from what I remember. And 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 so called new money, you know, through the digital money, has been coming, you know, has become so prevalent, and people are able to, you know, build a company and sell and so forth. So is that common? Is there is there a lot of people with a lot of wealth? Because a lot of a lot, the, what the media likes us to see is all the poverty and all the things that are going wrong with the world. So what's your opinion about that? Let's start with that. Tremendous amount of wealth creation. Uh, I mean, there are millionaires being created uh, in our country alone from the statistics I've seen, certainly uh, daily. So I I think that, uh, as you say, media 
um, likes to appeal to human nature and human nature likes to focus on what's negative. Yeah, <laughs> because that's that's our that, that that's how we function. So you're right. It, it, it's kind of like watching the news. They never report how many airplanes this year took off and landed successfully. They mm. only tell us about the one that had a mishap. Yeah. And that becomes what's available in our in our mind that we tend to use as an anchor to make decisions on flying or not. Yeah. Yep, I completely agree. So let's talk about your journey. So how did you land in this wonderful land of investment and helping people? Um, so how did it all begin for you? So that's a good question. I started off um, as an intern uh, in the summer of 87, working for a successful, in those days they were called stockbrokers, right. at a firm called Lehman Brothers. Mm-hmm. Which unfortunately uh, is no longer around uh, as 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 a result. Yes, since two thousand and eight. Right, <laughs> but they were around for over a couple hundred years. And oh so, yes, uh, yes, that's a that's a story to be had. I think, <laughs> and nothing's ever permanent in this world. You know, that was right. one of the oldest banks in in when well, been belly up. The ch- change is a constant, right? Yeah. So so I uh, spent two summers there and. Um, from there, I, I went on to graduate school, and I wanted to pursue a degree in accounting, a master's in tax and MBA in accounting. And what I wanted to do is learn the technical aspects of wealth that that uh, investors and families deal with. So that's why I want to learn the tax aspects of, of, uh, of what's involved. Then from there, I went on to a firm called Sanford Bernstein, which is now called Alliance Bernstein. Mm-hmm. At the time, was the largest privately owned money management firm in the, in the, in, in the U.S., and then uh, from there, I had different iterations at Morgan Stanley um, and a couple of the other big, uh, what they call wirehouse firms, UBS and uh, Citibank, uh, Smith Barney. And what I learned in 2000 to 02, which was um, about three years after I had left public accounting, Arthur Anderson was the firm I was with. I joined Sanford Bernstein. I was 29. I was fortunately the youngest person they had hired directly as an advisor, as opposed to an advisor assistant. Um, and um, and what I what I learned there in a six month training program, there was one day on what's called behavioral finance, which deals with um, essentially money and uncertainty and how to mm. make decisions in that context. And that always stuck with me, but I never pursued it at a very young age. Uh, from 2000 to 02, three short years after I started my uh, career in money management, I was faced with uh, a 50% decline in, uh, in, in, in stocks. And so essentially all of the clients I was trying to help that I had worked hard to, uh, to gain trust from in my first three years, let's say we, we, we had about a hundred million and then mm. quickly from 2002, it became 50 million. Oh, and, wow. Okay. Yeah, so, That's so, a significant drop. Significant drop in the client's uh, experience as well as in our business. And then from 2002 to 2004 or five, we were able to rebuild. And then just two short years after that, in 07, we experienced the beginning of the uh, of, of the entrance into the financial crisis. And so then we went down in half again, almost 60 percent. Right. So uh, so that that was the first decade of my career. What I learned was I was spending a lot of time talking my clients off the same cliff 
the day I was talking to them that I talked them off of a month earlier and a week earlier and the day before. And mm -hmm. I decided there had to be an easier way to help these people and to help the practice be calmer at the same time. And that's when it, it, it hit me like a light bulb. We have to not worry about um, explaining to them how investments worked over the long haul and trying to convince them to stay with it. We have to address the psychological issues that are driving those behaviors so that so that they, they don't manifest themselves as often. And that's when we got into behavior. Okay. So if, you, so if you've heard the if you've heard the uh, the saying in investing that past performance is no guarantee of exactly yeah they always right? say that yeah what I like to say is and this is not just as it relates to money but in life past behaviors are the closest thing to a guarantee of future behaviors future behaviors yeah I agree I think that's a perfect <laughs> that's a perfect way to describe um, how human psychology works if we behaved in a certain way up until a certain point. Unless there's an external, um, you know, reason for us to behave differently, we are going to behave in the same way. And even if we do have external factors working on us, it's still we we go to the status quo. We want to go back to what we find normal, and we end up behaving the same way. That's why charts are predictable, right? So we're not because I do a lot of trading, um, not right. so much recently now, but before. And the whole idea of the why the charts work is because that's based on human psychology, of, and and people behave in a similar fashion. Doesn't matter if it's you know, 20, 30 years behind, uh, apart, they tend to that's behave right. very similar way. Um, and that's that's how we we get some sort of predictability, not really that much, but as much as you can. Um, well, you, you're of... right. I mean, you, I don't know if you know Morgan Housel. Uh, Morgan Housel is, is a prolific writer in, mm -hmm. uh, in finance and mm -hmm. psychology. And his brand new book is called The Same as ever. ever yeah and i it just came out last week and what he basically talks about there is what i call the immutability of human nature yeah that you can't succeed in life by worrying about predicting the future because you never will be able to predict the future and the big things that are the turning points in life in general in history are things not that you could have predicted it's it's exactly the black swan events right so yeah he was recounting a story world war one there was a ship heading toward Germany and they shut off one of the um, one of the engines to save fuel to save uh, fuel and to make it more efficient. So because of that, they got to the destination um, a day later. And because of that, the, there's a German ship that that torpedoed them and a thousand or more people died. And that's why the U.S. entered into World War One. So had that had he not shut that one engine to save energy, they would have been there Earlier, earlier that event never would have occurred so it was one yeah. of his examples yeah i think that that this is something that i think when we we can talk practically and we can talk from from the you know from the psychology point of view but we sometimes take a step back and say oh, maybe there's something greater you know some divine source come into play because things happen mm -hmm. even so-called bad things you know you think that oh, this is such a horrible thing but some things need to happen in order for the next things to, you know, have the domino effect. And without right. one, the other doesn't happen. As you just mentioned, and I wasn't aware of it, had that German ship arrived a day earlier, then it wouldn't have been bombed. It wouldn't have been uh, bombed, and then U USA would not have entered into the world, you know, into the war. Yeah, and it then... was a U.S. ship that was headed that way, and the German ah. ship bombed them. And, and obviously, of course, that, that, and, yeah. and, 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 and then that's the reason why we're, you know, the, the, I think the, the Uncle Sam's help was needed for World War One and World War II. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's funny how device energy works. And sometimes bad things lead, I think all times, bad things lead to good, uh, you know, great 
great things or you know something which is a positive outcome i think generally that's how i look to look so come that's right to- you can't always predict what's going to happen because of what happened before Right. So let me ask you this. I mean, this is such a difficult um, area to be because you're 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 sandwiched between two things. And I don't know if you recognize this, but I'm just thinking about you what you do. So you're, on one hand, you'll have your clients, and they have made this money either through. I mean, it's unlikely that in this day and age that somebody would inherit as much as money. It's usually well, maybe the next generation would, but I think my generation or whatever, it's unlikely. It usually happens that they've they've, they've made a business and they've they've exited or whatever. So that's generally where most millionaires are made nowadays. That's right. Um, so they've they've put this five, ten, twenty years of hard work. Now they've exited the business. They've got lumps of money, five, ten, twenty, two hundred million, whatever it is, and then. They are giving you the responsibility of looking after that. That that's their life, life, you know, lifelong hard work, so to say. You know, um, right. and then you've got other type at the other end. You have other people who are not your clients, and who think, well, they have so much money. Why are you helping them to get more money? You know, you're helping the rich stay richer, and da da da. Well, you know, what's it? What do you get out of it? And this is so materialistic, and da da da. You know, all of that kind of malarkey. Right. You'll have those that you have. That those people probably in your ear as well. Like, no, what are you worried about? So what if you lost 5 million or 20 million? Oh my God, from 100 million to 50 million, what's a big deal? That is a big deal, right? That's 50% of drop. And of course, that's 50% of someone's livelihood. So how do you balance that? That's my question to you. How do you balance the expectation of your clients? And how do you balance those naysayers who are, well, why are you helping them make more money in the first place? So it's a good question. Look, I, I don't really get confronted by the naysayers yeah. often. So I don't really have to address that. Uh, I, I can't remember the last time I've had to address it. So I, yeah, I, 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 I'll, I'll ask the question first and then I'll come back and I'll, I'll, I'll let you add to you why I'm ask, I've asked that question. Okay. So, so, so look, what we try to do with, with everybody is to try to help them to figure out uh, what they want to figure out most. So what, what do most people want when they come to sit with someone in, in my seat mm. who's an advisor? They're looking for, I put in one word, certainty. As yeah. much certainty about their financial future as they can possibly get. Yep. And the challenge is I work in an industry that's all too happy to address that problem by handing them what I call the illusion of certainty. And so they'll tell them about how many analysts they have and economists they have, and they'll be able to forecast consistently what the economy is going to do and use that forecast to tell them when to get in and out of industries and sectors and the market in general. And no one can do those things consistently. So rather than hand back that illusion of certainty, what we do is we teach them how to make rational decisions given a constant state of uncertainty and and so we want to help everybody that way, uh, regardless of how much money they have. So now, what is it that they need to do? We work in an industry that defines risk and safety in right. terms of protecting principal. So somebody sold their business for ten million dollars, and they need to spend four hundred thousand a year. The industry is going to tell them, well, you're you're in your sixties, you can't afford risk. Mm-hmm. The industry defines again risk and safety in terms of protecting that principal. not just from disappearing, but even from fluctuating, Mm -hmm. they call volatility. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, they tell the client to have bonds, more bonds. Mm -hmm. Bonds actually freeze the the principal, every million dollar invested in a bond that matures in 20 years can only give you back a million when you need a lot more than a million in 20 years to buy what a million bought today. 100%, yeah, of course. So the industry's advice is generally teaching people to, to instead of measuring risk and safety the way it needs to be measured in terms of protecting our purchasing power, the ability of each dollar to maintain its value relative to inflation, what the industry is concerned with is 
to helping clients to manage the the fluctuation in the numbers of dollars they have periodically mm-hmm. or market movements the, by by addressing that the, in, the the incorrect way they kill purchasing power right and 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 so individuals are attracted to that because the way we're programmed is we're much more sensitive to changes in the value of what we have than to the actual value. So we have what's called loss aversion bias. The pain of a loss is felt to us two times more than the pleasure of a gain is felt pleasurable. And because of that, we're much more sensitive in the short run to protecting against fluctuation. And and in doing so, what ends up happening is we adopt strategies that are designed to protect against short-term fluctuation, which is more bonds. Those very same strategies are destructive to long-term wealth uh, 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 protection and growth. Mm -hmm. And so we help people to to realize that and then to kind of unpack that baggage and learn that it's the opposite. You need to invest in things that will maximize the long-term value of what you have. Oftentimes, those are the same things that will maximize the short-term fluctuation of what you have. And so those, those are the things we need to help them reconcile. I hope you are enjoying today's episode. If you want to learn more about my mindset strategies and energy tools to help you change your money mindset, then please register for my Abundance Mindset Makeover Workshop by visiting www.abundancemindsetmakeover.com. See you inside the workshop. Well, thank you for that. I think that's, and I completely agree, you do. You need to, you have to manage risk along with, um, you know, with the expectation of the ROI, because the returns are, are obviously um, are, are the more the higher the risk you're willing to take, the, the higher risk appetite, the more you are, you know, you're going to get the returns. And if the risk appetite is really low, then obviously the returns going to be are going to sort of reflect that as well. But well, and, question- and to your point, that the, the the critical thing there is the risk. So to to us, risk is not volatility or fluctuation risk is the chance i say it this most simple way i know how the chance that my last dollar may leave me before my last heartbeat Mm -hmm. that's the only risk that a plan should be in my view designed to address so when we define risk in terms of volatility um and you say what's your risk tolerance i would say what's my tolerance then for running out of money not Mm -hmm. what's my tolerance for watching some short-term fluctuation so that is a big difference, and and we're, it's that's so a big difference. That's yeah. a big difference. I think that to understand that, it, it's actually vital to to be able to um, you know have investments. I mean, even small ones. I've I've got some money in ISIS UK. I don't know what the U US version of that is, but this is uh, you know this is tax free. So whatever grows in my in my ISA account, it's, okay. it won't be taxed. So right. and. Um, and How do I get involved with that? <laughs> so, so, well, I pay tax firsthand. So they gave you this first. I pay I'm tax before. Teasing, yeah. And once it's taxed, I can put it into my ISA. But I know that, the, you know, it, it's, I've got it into shares and they go up and down. So they are, they are very volatile and they, they and so the amounts can decrease quite a bit. And it's sort of, I have I know that I'm okay with it, you know, decreasing over time because over eventually it will come back up and it will be fine. So I'm able to... One have the um, I, my risk capital is quite high anyway. But secondly, I know the I'm expecting volatility, but then that's because I'm 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 sort of you know educated in the financial world. How do you help or make your your lay clients, you know, your normal clients who are not versed in the in the financial jargon or the financial words, understand that? And um, how would you help them understand 
And how would you take the responsibility for that? That's my question more importantly. We'll ask right. the strategies next or more on money talkies, but at the moment, this is more to do with you. How do you handle, how do you work on your mindset? How do you help your clients to work um, you know, with a healthy money mindset in order to be able to have this? Because they have to right. have some risk appetite in order for them to go ahead and you know take your advice. Well, so so let's yeah, so let's address, I guess what, what I'll try to answer what I think you're asking me. Uh, directly, which is um, how do we help, as you say, the layperson? Now, I will tell you that financial success when it comes to investing, we, our strong belief is that it's one part um, intellect, what we know, mm-hmm. E ratios, finance or anything else, 99 parts temperament, what we do. So yeah. the smarter the person in terms of how much they've studied finance and investing, the worse they're likely to be as an investor because they're overconfident in skills that are not relevant to succeeding in investing. And so they go head first the wrong way. Um, mm-hmm. So so the first thing we try to do is we, we advise both of those people the same way. And that goes to what I call the immutability of human nature. Mm-hmm. So if we had 10 people that we met in, in a week, and I and I spoke to each of them, and and two of them were very successful entrepreneurs that I was trying to educate, and two of them were people who inherited money, never went through uh, college, and two of them had PhDs in finance, et cetera. The question I need to ask to help people understand what you're asking is: Are any of those people less likely than the other, based on their achievements in business or educational achievements, to have bailed out? In 2008, an abject terror of the financial crisis to bail out of some or all of their stock investments. Hmm. And of course, the answer is no. And is each of those people less likely than the other in 1998 to sell everything else other than dot-com stocks to chase the dot-com bubble? Hmm. And the answer, of course, is no, none of them are least likely than the other. Hmm. So it's what we do, not what we know, that leads to success or failure in investing. And because of the immutability of human nature, uh, we all are going to do the same things. That's Morgan Housel's book, basically. So mm-hmm. don't worry about predicting the future. Learn how we always act as human beings, and that will help you more than anything. So what we do is we teach everybody at the beginning by asking them some questions. So I might say, what is it that you most hope will happen to you financially for the rest of your life? Mm-hmm. So go, if I said it to you, you can answer. We could do a little bit of a role play. What would you say? Uh, so ask the question. What what do you most hope will happen to you financially for the rest of your life as you're engaging in investing now for your future? My investment to grow. Right. Okay. And what do you fear might happen in that regard? That I my because my risk appetite is quite high. I may you know take um, unnecessary risk and my pot becomes zero and I'm not enough at, at a later stage when I'm not able to replenish it. So at the moment right. um, I sort of laugh about it because I've lost so much money and I, I make stupid investments. I make good investments too, by the way. So I'm not just <laughs> dumb ones, but I've made some really, really dumb investments where I've lost like 100K within the space of, you know, a couple of months or something like that. And um, not to mention I have made 100K in, 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 in less than right, a couple right. months as well. It works both ways. Right. But I'm not worried because I, I'm very confident I can make money. I'm very good at making money at the moment, but I'm I'm really young at the moment. That's My concern right. is when I'm older and say when I'm you know when I'm 70 or 75 or 80 or or, or 90, I think I still probably will be working about 80, 85. But say if I'm 90 and I'm not able to I'm not able to do the things I can do now. And my mind isn't as alert and active as it is now. What if I make a big, you know, boo-boo and I end up losing my pot of money? That's my concern. That's your concern. So many people share that concern. And then I have a follow-up I usually ask them, which is how do you suppose that can happen investing, the way we're talking about? And they usually will say, 
something like, well, 2008 and nine might happen. I retire yeah. and, just, and all of a sudden the market's down 60% uh, in, in a matter of a year mm -hmm. or 2002, the technology bubble. Those yeah. are the things I feel can hurt me. So then I begin to teach them. So, so their fear is, and, and I talk when I use examples of investing of a diversified stock portfolio. And yeah. I always use just as an example, the standard and poor's 500 index, the 500, what I call largest, mm. um, best managed and most profitable companies in America and the world. So that's what I use as the example. So if, if, if you have someone come to the table and the fear they have is that they could somehow lose their money permanently. And the way that can happen is the market could decline like it did at some mm -hmm. uh, episode that they highlight in the past happened. That becomes a, a problem, not of educating people about how the financial markets work, because the financial markets, even today, we're probably 7% from all time highs, yeah. give or take, right? So no one has ever lost money in, in a diversified portfolio like the Standard & Poor's 500, mm -hmm. uh, yet everyone comes to the table thinking that there's a clear and present danger that that could happen to them, a permanent loss investing in stocks that way. And so it's not a problem. Again, I can show them the whole history from the time I was born in the 60s. The S&P was 60. We went through in the 1960s, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. We went through uh, the Vietnam War. And then the 70s, we went through the decoupling of gold and the dollar and Richard Nixon uh, having to resign and, and an energy crisis and a horrible uh economic decade of, of uh, employ unemployment, interest rates, and inflation all approaching 20%. Makes yeah, yeah, yeah. That was awful. Like a, when like I, yeah. off, right? Yeah. So we go through all of that. And I can tell them well, the other thing that happened during that entire period, including through 2001, the terrorist attacks and, and, and the pandemic, is the S&P 500 went from about uh, 100 in 1970 to, to about 4,300 today. So a million is 43 million. And inflation barely went up 10 times during that period. So what you, what it teaches them is that um, you've it's never happened what they're afraid of. So it's a problem of psychology. And I would call it abnormal psychology because right. it's the deep belief that something can happen. The loss permanently of some of my money investing that way in the face of being able to show that it's never happened. Mm. Right. Yet they still come and they believe it. And that goes to the education and and to to kind of you, you mentioned earlier how the news reports things. These are the narratives that are stuck in their head. So so they're just thinking about the plane that crashed. They're not recognizing how many planes go up and down. So they decide flying is dangerous. Right. They don't they don't realize how many planes go up and down all year that don't don't have an incident as it relates to stocks. The same thing. I agree. I think I think the, the educating I think the advice of education, you don't have to educate them completely on how the investment is done and how, you know, the intricacies of why they go up and down and the volatility, but you need to need to have some sort of mindset around it. But, okay. I know that, you know, there's going to be some volatility. I'd have to understand the ins and outs of it, but I know that my investment, my capital is is safe. And overall, the next five to 10 years, I'll, you know, I'll be fine and my money will be safe. Right. And that, and, that, that's right. And they also need to understand how they're defining safety. Remember, they're defining safety in terms of this volatility, this what I call this this illusory, this illusory um, risk that yeah. I call it, as opposed to the real risk, which is the over a multi-decade horizon of retirement. As you said, you had yourself yeah. to 90. You're right. Mm -hmm. That's our life expectancy. So you have someone in retirement could have 30 years. So yeah. the real risk is the erosion of their, their purchasing power. And by having too much in bonds or not enough in stocks, mm -hmm. which is the only thing that I showed you can keep up and surpass inflation, that's the real risk. 
So by taking on bonds for the illusory safety of protecting against the movement temporarily up and down of the value of the assets, they're ensuring failure to keep up with the cost of living. So if they still have that million in 20 years, um, they can only buy maybe a half a million of, of goods and services with it. They've long since begun to unravel their principal to make up for the difference in the purchasing power that's been eroding compounding 3% a year. So it's critical for, 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 for us to help people redefine risk and safety, not in terms of fluctuation in the value of what they own, but in terms of erosion of the purchasing power. And the investments that lead to the protection and growth of purchasing power, I call safe, which are a company's ownership stock, and investments that lead to the decline and diminution of purchasing power, bonds, and things that fix our income and the principle that's generating it, those are risky. So imagine we've got to teach people not only to unpackage the baggage that they've been <laughs> packed up with, but we've got to tell them the things we're going to now teach them are not just different than what they've learned. They're opposed. They're the opposite of what they learned. Stocks are safe. Bonds are risky. As we wrap, thank you so much for that. We, as we wrap this episode up, I, I still want to go back to this last question of how did you? So you you were in employment for so for so long. So how did you start uh, working for yourself? When you went and worked for yourself, how did that happen? And how did you go from um, an employee mentality to um, you know business owner mentality? Yeah, that's a good question because it's very different. So yeah. we we were working in an industry always, right? The investment management industry, mm. where we worked for a, a number of large firms. Last yeah. one was UBS before we went out and created Fusion. And at UBS, um, our clients that we had at UBS were an amalgamation of a clients that had begun hiring us or as early as 1997. So even though that wasn't our own business, so to speak, they were our clients uh, as if we had our own business mm -hmm. that would follow us wherever we went. So when we decided that the technology in the industry had advanced to the point where we no longer needed the big firm infrastructure to operate, and we didn't use any of the big firm guidance on investments and alternative investments, we, we never adopted any of that. Um, and so when that became available, having an infrastructure to go on our own, that's when we did it. And that was in 2014, end of 13. And, and around 2011 is when I really went full on um, into the idea that helping people understand their behaviors and, and modify when, when needed is the, the most critical element uh, to help people succeed. So we built the whole new firm on that philosophy. So I, I love that you, you're not only just helping them with the money, you help them with the mindset first in order for them to have um, a healthy pot and, and, and understand how the money is going to be invested, which I think is crucial. You're, you're right. I mean, I always tell people I, I look at my role for them if they hire us twofold. One is to help them with a plan that that will likely get them to where they need to get and to fund that plan with investments whose historic returns as against the historic rate of inflation would have yielded the results that they're looking for. And, and then the second part is to get them there with as few sleepless nights as possible, right? The money mindset. And, and you're 100% right. Those are my, I consider those two equal, equal in terms of my responsibility. Wonderful. So tell us, um, Jonathan, how can we connect with you? Where can people find you? All right. Thank you. So they can find us on our website, fusionfamilywealth.com. And um, 
and uh, all our contact information and, and information about our whole process that we just talked a little bit about uh, is is delineated um, on that website. Wonderful. So if you are listening to us on the podcast, the link that Johnson just mentioned and all his other links would be on the show notes. And if you're watching on YouTube, then down below in the description section, we will have all the links that for Jonathan do. Do check him out. Um, just a quick question, Jonathan. Do you help people outside the US or are you US focused only? We we do have some clients outside the U.S. So each country has different uh, different regulations. So, for example, the U.S. doesn't have a um, an agreement with Canada, so we can't actually service a Canadian client. But yes, we do have clients outside the U.S. So even if you are not in the U.S., if you feel that you can get the help or and you need some additional help uh, with your with your wealth uh, or wealth management, then do contact Jonathan and see how he can help you. Thank you so much for t- coming and talking to us, Jonathan. It's been a learning curve for me too. I've learned quite a lot as well. Um, but we have to have you back on my talkies so we can carry on having this discussion further. But for today, thank you so much. Thank you, Gal. Pleasure to be here. And thank you for listening to me and Jonathan today. I will be back on another Friday feature with another amazing guest finding out how they changed their life by changing their mindset. Until the next time we, this is Girl Khan signing off. Take care and bye for now. If you want to learn more about my energy tools and mindset strategies, then please visit my website www.gulkhan.com and if you want to take part in our five-day abundance mindset makeover workshop where I deep dive into energy tools for abundance then please go to www.abundancemindsetmakeover.com and register. I look forward to being your mentor in the next workshop and if you want to learn about the spiritual laws of money then go and get my book Laws of Money from www.lawsofmoney.com. Until the next time we meet, this is Gul Khan signing off. Take care and bye for now.